0: And welcome back to another episode of Nature in a Nutshell, the podcast which breaks down the latest ecology and environmental news. My name's Sophie, and I'm the marketing officer at Syene, the Chartered Institute of Ecology and Environmental Management. And I'm joined by my two colleagues and co-hosts, Jason and Doug, who will be breaking down the big news stories this month affecting people in nature.
1: Thanks, Sophie. Hi, I'm Jason. I'm Syene's head of policy. And I'm Doug. I'm Syene's policy officer.
0: What are we covering in today's episode then?
1: So today we've got the latest OEP report. That's the Office for Environmental Protection. We've got a new national park for
2: Scotland. And ever present, we've got the latest on biodiversity net gain. Yeah, I'll crack on with this and buckle in everyone. This is a, it's a fairly big item, so get comfy. So yeah, this is a sort of an item on the recent OEP report about the government's progress on meeting its environmental ambitions. So it's been a pretty landmark moment in England. So this is a publication by the Office for Environmental Protection, so that's the OEP, and it's the first major review of the government's 2023 Environment Improvement Plan, that's the EIP. So yeah, when I say OEP and EIP, hopefully, yeah, it won't be confusing. So the OEP, for those not too familiar, is the public watchdog created under the Environment Act in 2021. And its mission is to protect and improve the environment by holding government and other public authorities to account. So it's a really, really important public body. And they've already been, I think, doing some great work and really trying to hold government to account. So the report provided an assessment of the government's progress towards its own legally binding environment targets and goals. And it found that by and large, the government is largely off track and must significantly speed up and scale up its efforts to achieve them. In fact, the chair of the OEP, Dame Glenis Stacey, commented that Deeply concerning adverse environmental trends continue, and that the government has not been clear enough about how its ambitions will actually be delivered. So, not great stuff, really. And what do the numbers say? Of the 40 environmental targets assessed by the OEP, the government is mostly on track to achieve four, partially on track to achieve 11, and largely off track to achieve 10. The remaining 15 cannot be assessed due to a lack of evidence, which for me doesn't spark much hope about their progress. And some of these targets include really important things. So this things like protected sites, in which the government has already missed its targets as set in its previous strategy paper, Biodiversity 2020, of ensuring that at least 50% of the sites of special scientific interest, or SSSIs, were in favorable condition. To make up for this, the government has set a new target of 75% of sites in favorable condition by 2042 which sounds okay, but it doesn't exactly put us in a good place to achieve our COP15 goal of 30 by 30. So if you remember, that's 30% of the planet protected and 30% of degraded ecosystems restored by 2030, which is a bit sooner than 2042. And that is a goal that I might add the UK government made lots of noise about pushing for, both at home and internationally. So missing that target ourselves isn't ideal. So alongside this, the OEP's assessment of 51 recent environmental trends found that about 25 are improving, 10 are static, so not changed at all, 8 are deteriorating, and 8 could not be assessed due to the lack of data again, with most progress being made in reducing physical environmental pressures or things like air pollutants, greenhouse gas, and chemical pollutants in particular. The OEP concluded that in terms of overall prospects of meeting its seven primary goal areas, so that's the main things the government was aiming for with the DIP, The primary goal of thriving plants and wildlife, it's largely off track, so it's not going to meet that if it keeps going at the current state at all. In two goal areas, clean air and reducing the risk of harm from environmental hazards, it's partially on track, so it might meet some of it, but not all of it. And in one area, enhancing beauty, heritage, and engagement with the natural environment, again, it couldn't be assessed due to lack of evidence. So there seems to be a real issue here with the government being able to provide the OEP with actual evidence to assess it. So... All in all, not a great showing for the government on the environment. The report really slammed them as it should, but the OAP has identified helpfully some key factors that are really impeding progress. So key policies, strategies, and regulatory frameworks are announced and anticipated, but then they're not delivered or developed. So really the government's got a lot of bark about what it's going to do, but not a lot of bite in terms of actually delivering these policies. Actions are not addressing all major pressures and often approaching issues piecemeal. So for example, water quality investments increasing substantially, which the government has talked about a lot, but they're not in all the areas of need. So they're not really focusing properly on where they should, or they're sort of doing a scattergun approach. The resources aren't being allocated as needed. So we have the tools and the knowledge of how to tackle issues. We understand what actions we need to take, but for example, invasive species, non-native invasive species, we know what we need to do, but resources are often inadequate to actually take action. So it ends up with nothing being done. And then finally, urgency is severely lacking when implementing positive actions. So for example, the rate of tree planting isn't remotely enough to achieve actual woodland creation goals. So the report finished by really reaffirming the key recommendations made by the OP last year. So it's making the same points again, as well as some further ones relating to the environmental improvement plan. And those that the government should implement the Environment Improvement Plan 2023 effectively, so actually do the plan, develop and implement clear and effective governance, develop and implement delivery plans, set and vigorously pursue clear and achievable interim targets, and develop and implement an effective monitoring, evaluation, and learning framework. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. There's a lot to get into. It's a fantastic report. So I really recommend going and reading it we've published a piece on it on our sign blog so go read that as well but the watchdog is really doing their job and those key factors impeding progress i think are really interesting to get into so yeah a great report and definitely worth a read
0: thanks doug for that deep dive into that report as doug mentioned all of those links will be in our show notes but now we're moving on to national parks so over to you jason
1: yes thanks safe so moving on to national parks yes so Towards the end of last year, Scottish government opened the nominations process for a new national park in Scotland. Very exciting. And at the beginning of this year, we're starting to see a lot of interest and activity on this and sites starting to put themselves forward. Proposals need to be submitted by the end of February 29th. So yeah, not much time and lots of activity. So Scotland currently has two national parks, Loch Lomond and the Trossachs, and the Cairngorms National Park, both established in the early 2000s. So really exciting for Scotland with all of that space and wilderness to have a third national park. There's been interest from across Scotland, Galloway, Scottish Borders, Tay Forest, Loch Eber, Isle of Skye, Glenafric, the Lammermuirs, Largo Bay, Loch Ben Nevis and Glencoe, and even be really exciting, a coastal and marine park. So overall, really exciting, we really need to be putting the, the spotlight on nature, wildlife, the great outdoors. Hopefully this adds interest and impetus for people to get outside and connect with nature. But we really need national parks to play their part in restoring nature and biodiversity as well. Certainly have a massive role to play in the global 30 by 30 target for us having 30% of our land and sea protected for nature by 2030. So exciting times ahead. Really looking forward to see what comes out of this and Scotland having a new national park. Yeah. I think there's something like this going on in Wales as well, Doug. I don't know if you can say anything on that.
2: Yeah. So I think similar to Scotland, there's been a lot of discussion in Wales about creating a new national park to go along with these existing three, which would actually be the first time a new park has been created since 1957. So these parks have been around for a long time now. So in Wales, we've got Eryri, which is Snowdonia. We've got the Pembrokeshire Coast Path, and we've got newly named Banai Brcheiniog, which is the Brecon Beacons. And this fourth one is planned for the northeast of the country. So The pledge for this new park was started in about 2021. It's a bit further ahead in the process than this new Scotland park. And the plan is for it to center on the Cluidian Range and the Dee Valley area of outstanding natural beauty. So if you've never been there, this is right in the northeast of the country. So it's right next to the border with England and sort of touches up to the border with Erede or Snowdonia. It's gorgeous. It's absolutely, it's a really amazing part of the country. There's lots of cultural heritage as well as natural. There's quite a few castles. There are Iron Age hill forts. I actually walked there quite a few years ago with a load of my friends when we were doing the Offers Dyke Path, which is sort of a wall that goes up the border. It's amazing. And, you know, I mean, you might have guessed that from its sort of existing status as an AONB. And you might say that surely that means it's already well protected and its nature is well preserved. But AONBs are sort of in this, they're sometimes slightly nebulous. So they're meant to conserve and enhance a region's natural beauty, but it's down to the local authorities to handle that. And a national park, however, means a new authority is set up to oversee it. So primarily directed for the national park. And also the park needs to conserve and enhance wildlife alongside natural beauty or cultural heritage. So sometimes AOMBs can just preserve what's existing. And often if what's existing isn't really good for wildlife, you end up not enhancing wildlife. So it can get a bit complicated in terms of what's enhancing what, but technically national parks should have wildlife. And in theory, this should be good for the environment there. And we've already seen a huge campaign last year uh, around the state of the environment in Wales's national parks with the rebranding of Brecon Beacons to Banibut Chyniog and a huge campaign about reversing wildlife loss. It remains to be seen how successful this is. And the sort of timeline is that uh, Natural Resources Wales, so that's NRW, will publish the final map of the proposed area this year. And then there'll be a public consultation on the proposed area, if it's suitable, what local people think about that, what other people think about that, and then a formal recommendation we've made in 2026 to Welsh Government, who will then have the final say And if it goes ahead. So, I mean, this will be happening this year and then over the next couple of years. So, yeah, some exciting things to look forward to, I think.
0: And moving on then to biodiversity net gain or B&G going live.
1: Thank you very much. I feel like we've been talking about biodiversity net gain on the podcast for a while now, so we're getting to fruition and by the time you're listening to this live, hopefully we're about around the date of everything becoming mandatory. So yeah, to finish off the news items this month, we now have dates for biodiversity net gain becoming mandatory in England. DEFRA have confirmed that it will become mandatory for new major developments from the 12th of February and that for small developments from the 2nd of April, national infrastructure still coming. that will be further down the road. But from 12th of February, biodiversity net gain becomes mandatory for new planning applications major developments under the Town and Country Planning Act. Um, So that's major developments for residential for more than 10 dwellings, 10 or more dwellings rather, or where the site area is greater than half a hectare. There's a slightly longer process. There's an extended transition, as Defra calling it, for small sites, so a bit more time to get everything in place for that. So BNG will become mandatory for small sites from the 2nd of April. And small sites are defined as residential developments of less than 10 dwellings or where the area is less than half a hectare or for commercial developments where the floor space created is less than 1,000 square meters or the total site area is less than one hectare. So BNG will only apply to planning applications that are made on or after the 12th of February for those major developments. DEFRA have put in those transitional arrangements for the commencement of the regulations to ensure that biodiversity net gain won't apply for anything. If you've got your planning permission before the 12th of February or before the 2nd of April for small site, it doesn't necessarily apply. And then lastly, just to add that there's also been an amendment to one of the statutory instruments for biodiversity net gain. There's been some controversy around the biodiversity gain hierarchy. So it's not the same as the mitigation hierarchy in planning. And there has been pointed out that these are not quite in sync with the mitigation hierarchy You're supposed to avoid, reduce, restore, and offset in that order. And there's been some concern that habitats that are assessed as low or medium distinctiveness don't get the same protection as those habitats that are high or very high distinctiveness. DEFRA have amended one of the statutory instruments slightly to try and solve this issue. I think the wording could be tighter, but hopefully they're more aligned now. So we're protecting all habitats in the same way and trying to avoid those impacts in the first place, rather than moving further along to biodiversity net gain in the first instance.
2: It's all moving along. By the time you hear this, we should be pretty close to that go live date. It's good that we're finally getting, uh, I mean, BNG becoming mandatory in England. I mean, what are the other countries in the UK up to then?
1: Yeah, that's a good point, Doug. So we've had so much focus on England. But yes, the other countries are progressing with this too. So in Scotland, the biodiversity strategy consultation that closed at the end of last year, asked some questions around a metric for biodiversity enhancement. So There's some questions in there around what that might look like. So we might see something later this year in the natural environment bill that Scottish government is due to publish. In Wales, Welsh government's still interested in biodiversity enhancements through the planning system, and we've actually helped them write some advice on that that's been published for planners. And then in Ireland, actually, quite exciting, we've just published a briefing paper on biodiversity enhancements for the whole island of Ireland, so both north and south. Biodiversity net gain is already happening on a voluntary basis in Ireland, across Ireland, and they've adapted the metric to work for them over there. But there's nothing in policy at the moment in either country on taking that forward. So we've written this briefing paper that gives a background and an introduction to biodiversity net gain in England and how it's also happening in the other countries. And then giving some recommendations on how it might work across Ireland. And we're hoping that can be used as a discussion point to start the process over there. Cause it's something that, you know, we really need to start moving forward with nature restoration rather than just no net loss.
0: If you would like to find out more about BNG, please visit our website. We have a resource page linked from the homepage, which you can go and check out where we're keeping it up to date with all the latest updates. And you can also go back and listen to episode six of this podcast, where we speak with Julia Baker and she tells us what BNG is and how exactly it works. Moving on to our positive news now. So Pine Martins have returned to the south of England so pine martins were once widespread across the UK, but habitat loss and human activity reduced their numbers so drastically that only small populations have been observed in the north of England, until now that is. It's been confirmed by Forestry England and Wild New Forest with support from the Hampshire and Isle of Wight Wildlife Trust in a long-term study that pine martins are now settled in the New Forest National Park in Hampshire. So hidden remote cameras have captured incredible footage of the species, and they've also observed successful breeding too. People working on this study have reviewed over 60 hours of hidden camera footage and been rewarded with just five separate video clips. But this is enough for the new forest to have been deemed a suitable habitat to support the pine martens. So is there anything that you guys want to add about that?
1: I think this is great news and it's really wonderful that it's on our doorstep. So the same office is based in Hampshire, Southern Hampshire. So the new forest isn't far away from us. I think it's great that a a native species is breeding. There's a question around how they got there. The point is that the more resilient an ecosystem, the more species it has at each trophic level. So it's good that they're there. We certainly wouldn't encourage
2: anyone to do any illegal releases, but I'm pleased to see them there. I mean, they're just a fantastic mustard species. They're really charismatic. They're just this great arboreal predator. I mean, if you've ever seen them, they're just gorgeous. But they predate grey squirrels as well, which I think is really important for us in the UK. You know, it's a really damaging invasive species that's now become semi naturalized, but it outcompetes our native red squirrel. But pie martins are really good at keeping grey squirrels in check. And it's been shown in areas where pie martin are prevalent, the red squirrel populations also increase because they're sort of less likely to be predated. So just a great mustelid, as with all mustelids, really charismatic. And I think great to see them spreading and sort of, you know, getting into more locations and just re-establish themselves in the UK.
0: Well, thanks for listening to another episode of Nature in a Nutshell. We hope you enjoyed it. As always, please don't forget to go ahead and rate and review the podcast and we will see you next month.
2: Bye. Bye. Bye.